We'll cultivate our motivation. In the last verse we did, Shandideva spoke about putting on shoes instead of trying to cover the earth with leather. The analogy being working with our own mind rather than trying to control other people. So what can you do to remember to do this? Are there phrases that you could say to yourself when you start to get angry or annoyed? How can you put this verse into practice? Then with an attitude that, uh, thinking, I will change my own way of looking at this, this situation. I will change my own behavior, my own thought, and abandon anger and blame. Then that gives space to cultivate compassion for other people. wishing them to be free of suffering. And then that mind of compassion can be the cause of bodhicitta. The more times we generate bodhicitta, even if it's contrived bodhicitta, the more we put that imprint into our mind, and one day it will become actual bodhicitta. Well, we had April weather in January, and now we have January weather in April.
and samsara continues to be unpredictable. But predicting that it is unpredictable. So we should be uh, not be surprised when all this happens. Okay. So we were just uh, in chapter five, guarding alertness, or guarding introspective awareness. Um, we were talking about how uh, the pain and misery comes from our mind and how the practice of the uh, perfections also depends on the mind. So generosity doesn't depend on solving all the poverty in the world. Ethical conduct doesn't mean stopping everybody else from harming or even stopping everybody else from feeling harm at our behavior when we had no intention of harming and they misunderstood the situation. And then, uh, you know, looking at a way to deal with anger instead of blaming others, wanting to control them, getting upset at them. Yeah, because uh, we can't even control our own mind, let alone their mind. So we should at least try and control our mind. Yeah, And that's the meaning of putting the leather, putting on shoes instead of trying to cover the world in leather. Okay, so that's a very famous verse, and it's an incredible practical verse you know, to remember. Um, Because once we get into blame, I mean, once we let anger take hold and get into blame, it's a slippery slope, you know. We go downhill and then we start looking at every small thing somebody else did and we get infuriated and then we're mad at the whole ambience around us and we go back and, you know, remember how, you know, develop all sorts of stories about my whole life. I've been subjected to all this torture of this and that. And it uh, just makes us totally miserable. Okay. So this is not saying that people haven't been abused or people don't have PTSD or whatever. Those things are quite real. But the thing is, how are you going to respond to it? That's the, the trick, you know. And what, uh, what stops suffering? Yeah. What mental attitude will stop the suffering? And what mental attitude exacerbates the suffering? So here, you know, we, we have a certain thing. It, don't know about we've got to be right and if we're right you know okay I'm suffering and if I'm right that this person did this yeah and why am I right because my friends agree with me that they're they're the naughty person so you know if I'm right then we have this feeling of well I'm entitled to uh, inflict harm on them. I'm entitled to feel sorry for myself. 
I'm entitled to, uh, you know, blame them and wallow in my own whatever, um, waiting for them to confess and apologize, which, you know, they don't do. <laughs> and some of them don't even know, that, you know, that, that we're so upset about the situation. Okay? So it's, uh, you know, we have a choice how to view the situation, how to structure it in our own mind. And uh, one choice creates more unhappiness, and another choice just is able to let it go. Okay. So I uh, remember one time years ago complaining to one uh, Dharma friend of mine. Uh, I was living in a certain place, and the people this and that. And, oh, and I was complaining to him, and he said, this is samsara, what do you expect? That stopped me dead in my tracks. Well, actually, I expected perfection. I expected everything in this situation to be wonderful. And even when it wasn't, I expected the other people in it should at least be truthful, and they should at least apologize. Yeah, and they should at least hear my pain and not do what they're doing anymore. That's what I expected. Yeah, and then it's like, okay, kid, go ahead and expect that and see where it takes you. <laughs> yeah, it was quite obvious it wasn't going to take me to any kind of uh, peace in my mind. Okay, so uh, verse 14. Likewise, it is not possible for me to restrain the external course of things, but should I restrain this mind of mine, what would be the need to restrain all else? Okay, so we cannot control the world. And if we're miserable the way the world is, yeah, then we have to restrain our own negative afflictions about the world. Okay. Now, some people could easily misinterpret this and think that it means you just accept injustice. You just accept oppression. Yeah. You just accept, you know, corruption. Because if you don't just accept it, then you're going to get angry and you can't control it. So just say, I accept it and do nothing about it and, you know, stick your head further into the sand. Yeah, we can easily misinterpret it to mean that. That's not what Shantideva means. Okay. If there is injustice or harm or oppression or whatever going on in the world, we need to act to remedy it because we have compassion for the people who are suffering due to it. And we have compassion for the perpetrators. Okay. 
But in order to have compassion for both the perpetrators and the people who are suffering, we have to have a calm mind. Okay? As long as our mind is angry, then we take sides in the situation. And then our mind usually becomes exactly like the mind of the people who we are protesting against or whose behavior we don't like. So the idea is we practice fortitude to calm our own mind. And then that gives us a stable basis and an open mind to understand how all the different people in the situation are looking at it and to see if we can come up with some kind of resolution that will satisfy the needs of the different people or at least some of the needs, probably not all of them of each side, but at least some of them, okay? But in order to really, you know, be adept at conflict resolution, we have to um, have the mind that wishes both sides well, which means we have to practice fortitude, okay? So fortitude doesn't mean we become passive, okay? Repeat. It does not mean we become passive. It also does not mean that we legitimize our revenge and our blame by saying, well, I practice fortitude, but those people are still rotten, which means we haven't actually practiced fortitude. We've practiced anger. <laughs> okay? So... uh you know, it's it's a delicate mind. We have to really be sensitive to what's going on in our own mind, yeah? Because it's easy to whitewash things, especially, um, okay, if it's somebody else suffering, it's easy to whitewash things. If you're part of the minority class, whether it's the uh, gender minority, racial minority, religious minority, whatever minority, you tend to, you know, say, well, what can I do? You know, and especially as women, we are trained to be nice and be good and don't make a fuss. So, you know, what we often do is instead of resolving our anger, we stuff it. Okay because it's socially unacceptable for us to express it. Now, that doesn't mean that we should say, well, I've been stuffing my anger for so long, so now I'm, I'm tired of stuffing it. I'm tired of taking care of all those other people and giving in to what they want, and if I'm angry, they're going to know it. Blah. And we throw our anger up on all of them. Okay, that's not resolving the problem, okay? So the, the resolution of repressing your anger isn't turning around and blaming everybody else. Uh, just like the resolution of always taking care of other people and developing some 
resentment because of that, the the remedy to that isn't saying, well, I'm not taking care of anybody anymore and I'm just out of here and I'm going to do what I want. That doesn't solve, isn't the resolution either. Okay? You know, and I say this because we so often, we're at this extreme and we go to that extreme. Okay? And so we actually what our desired outcome is, we want to be free from the mental affliction that is making us miserable. And whether we stuff it or whether we act it out, it's still making us miserable. And we're still creating negative karma. Yeah? Maybe a little bit less if we stuff it, because we aren't doing verbal and physical harm. But it's going to come out in some other way. Okay, so that's why it's really important to to not only learn the antidotes to anger, but practice them in your daily meditation and remember situations in the past where you got upset and then think about these various antidotes and apply them to that situation that you were uh, upset about in the past and that way you get some familiarity with the antidotes and the more familiarity you have the easier it's going to be to remember them and apply them when you're in a situation yeah. people often write and they ask me well, what do I do when you know I'm just furious in the middle of a situation yeah how do I get rid of the anger then You know, that's that's too late. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's never too late. But the real way to do it is to practice it when you're not angry. Because even remembering situations in the past will make you slightly angry in your meditation. And then you practice the, you know, pr- using that uh, Dharma antidote. Yeah. When you're you're full-blown raging, you know, the best thing you can do is say, I'm really upset right now. I don't want to say or do something that I regret. Please excuse me. I'm going to calm myself down. When I'm calm, I will come back and talk to you. And then excuse yourself. And sometimes the other person gets mad. Yeah, because they want to have a big argument. Some people kind of like like that. I had one person I was working with one time. He re- he really liked having arguments. You know, it helped him define himself. And so one time, you know, there was an argument starting, and I just said, "I'm I'm not participating." I turned and walked away, and he shouted after me. You know. What are you doing? Come back here. You're, you know, you're running away. I just kept going. (laughs) Yeah, because I knew that my state of mind at that moment, I, you know, I did not want to get hooked into what was going on with him. And I was too upset to kind of sit and listen. Yeah. So, but 
he got mad, but, you know, that was nothing unusual, <laughs> unfortunately. Okay. So, verse 14 is saying, but should I restrain this mind of mine, what would be the need to restrain all else? Okay, so if I'm able to call, calm my mind, then I don't need to get angry and try and control other people. Yeah. And this is especially difficult if you have a family member or a loved one and you see them doing behavior that is really bad for them. You know, they're smoking a few bags of cigarettes a day, they're drinking and drugging, they're, you know, uh, lying, they're gambling, the, you know, uh, all the family money, whether it's in a casino or online Wall Street stuff, you know, and you're furious and you're upset and you know that what they're doing is not good for you or the rest of the family and it's not good for them and you want to go and grab them because they're an adult and say, Stop it and listen to me because you're going down the wrong path, you idiot. Yeah, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice to go and grab them and do that? Yeah, problem is most of them are probably bigger than us. <laughs> so, yeah. And we can't control them. Even if we could go and grab them and shake them up, we can't control them. We can't control them. The guys I work with uh, who are imprisoned, yeah, uh, they tell me especially about drug and alcohol abuse because often they have court orders to go uh, to see a counselor about it or rehab or something. And... Uh, and they know the trick, and they go, and they know what to say, and they continue drinking and drugging. But the court is, you know, pleased. But they tell me that to really change, they have to really hit bottom. And until they hit bottom, there's not going to be the motivation to change. And so sometimes we have to let the people we care about hit bottom. We try and help them before they do, yeah, and we do our best to help them. But when somebody really, you know, cannot uh, handle it, they have to hit bottom, and then they start to change, yeah. And then the change holds because they're quite aware through their own experience of what happens uh if they resume the bad habit. Yeah. Okay. When as children we can control and we can make them afraid of us. So they'll stop doing something out of fear, not necessarily because of understanding, but at least they'll stop doing it out of fear, you know, and not harm themselves. But when people get older, yeah, you can talk yourself blue in the face sometimes. And, uh, you know, their mind is made up. 
So you make prayers for them and wish them well and keep the door open so that sometime when they, uh, you know, hit after they hit bottom and decide they need to change, that they know they can come back. And when they come back, it is so tempting to say, I told you so. But you really have to exercise extraordinary restraint at that mind, at that time. Because you really want to rub it in that we were right and you were wrong and you should have listened to me long before you did because then you wouldn't be in the jam you're in right now, you idiot. (laughs) Isn't that the recording in your mind, you know? And you have to really restrain and say, oh, okay, yeah, I'll help you now. (laughs) yeah of course we're never that person who doesn't listen to advice yeah we're never that person because everything we do is right yeah and if we've really made a decision and we've decided to do something that's our free choice and other people can just mind their own business (laughs) it's amazing what our mind does isn't it sometimes i'm able to eat to add even another layer that when i see advice i received in the past from caring loving people was good and that i didn't listen to it then my mind says well they should have made it more clear to me they should have explained it better (laughs) yes Yes, of course. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Anything except it's my responsibility. Anything but that. <laughs> you tired? <laughs> tired of what? <laughs> So Galtap says, verse 15, the heading is enthusiasm depends on the mind. And then 16 is mental stabilization Station depends on the mind. 17 is wisdom. Okay. Okay, so, yeah, so 15. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, so 15 says, although the development of merely a clear state of concentration can result in taking birth in Brahma's realm, Physical and verbal actions cannot so result when accompanied by a weak mental by weak mental conduct. So this is saying if you want to develop the dhyanas and single-pointed concentration, you need very strong joyous effort. Okay? Because you can develop a clear state of concentration that results in taking rebirth in Brahma's realm, yeah, if that's what you want. But that depends on exerting effort in your meditation practice. That involves training the mind, because physical and verbal actions cannot result in a rebirth in Brahma's realm. 
only the uh, practicing, you know, uh, serenity and then going beyond serenity in this life can result in that kind of rebirth. Okay, so when accompanied by weak mental conduct, when our mind is distracted, when our mind lacks effort, when we're lazy in our practice, then serenity and the dhyana uh, level of concentration is not going to come about. Okay. Then 16, okay, so that's enthusiastic uh, joyous effort, then 16 is about the perfection of meditative stability. So the knower of reality, in other words, the Buddha, said that even if recitation and physical hardships are practiced for long periods of time, they will be meaningless if the mind is distracted elsewhere. Okay, so even we do lots of recitation, you know, we're all the time, you do one retreat after the other with lots of mantra recitation. Um, you do physical hardships, you know, you, you don't just do 100,000 prostrations, but you say you're going to be like Jay Rinpoche and do 100,000 for each of the 35 Buddhas. So that's 3.5 million prostrations. And you've set yourself the deadline by, you know, two weeks from tomorrow. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so if even you really exert yourselves in recitation and physical hardships and, you know, you do one nune after another, so you don't just stop at 108 nunes, but you think 108 years doing nune constantly. Um, you know, so, so you, you really put energy into your changing your speech and changing your body. But if the mind doesn't have the correct motivation and you're daydreaming when you're doing all of these things and your mind is distracted, okay, then, uh, this is not going to bring about the result of, you know, the meditative, the perfection of meditative stability. Okay. Now here he says these things will become meaningless if the mind is distracted elsewhere. I think there's probably still a little bit of value in them, and at least you're doing them because you have faith, you know, and and you yeah, you have faith and, and respect for the the three jewels. But compared to the value you could reap if these, you do these things with a proper motivation and with proper concentration when you're doing them, compared to that, then it looks meaningless. Okay? So it's, it's the kind of thing, well, I'm going to do these prostrations anyway. I might as well try and concentrate. Yeah? <laughs> but then your mind says... Oh, but it takes too much energy to concentrate, so I'll just be distracted. And uh, I'll just see it as I'm going to the gym. You know, I go up and down and up and down and up and down. Once in a while, I remember, you know, there's some light coming into me, and I, I have some regret for past things, and then I go back to the gym, and, and I think I'm developing muscles, and I'm going to be so fit after this. And, 
I, you know, <laughs> okay, then it's, yeah, we're uh, not really taking advantage of what we could be doing. You know? Okay, so that's one, that one is about the perfection of meditative stability. Then 17 is about the perfection of wisdom. So even those who wish to find happiness and overcome misery will wander with no aim or meaning if they do not comprehend the secret of the mind, the paramount significance of dharma. Okay, So if we don't uh, understand emptiness, okay, which is the secret, the hidden mode of existence of the mind, and it's the, the real meaning of practicing the Dharma because, uh, you know, actualizing the emptiness, actualizing the wisdom that realizes emptiness is the key to liberation and is also uh, necessary to attain Buddhahood. Okay? So if we really wish, if we have a strong spiritual motivation to find happiness and overcome misery, not just the happiness of chocolate and the misery of not getting your chocolate, but, um, you know, real happiness and, uh, and the dukkha of samsara, um, we will wander with no aim or meaning unless we generate that kind of wisdom. So we need to put with, uh, we need to put joyous effort into learning the teachings on emptiness and then contemplating them and meditating on them. And we need to also improve our concentration because even if we uh, get an inkling of emptiness, if we cannot hold our mind on that because our mind quickly, you know, it's, uh, either getting dull or it's getting restless and agitated, um, you know, then, then whatever we've understood, it can't really uh, go deep in our mind because it can't stay there because our mind is on to something else. Yeah. Usually, they did this to me and they don't appreciate me and, or I want this and I want that. You know, so it usually goes to some kind of eight worldly dharmas. Okay. So then verse 18, this being so, okay, so yeah, this whole thing regarding how to uh, actualize the six perfections, yeah, so it all depends on the mind if you want to actualize the six perfections. So this being so, I shall hold and guard my mind well. Without the discipline of guarding the mind, what use are many other disciplines? Okay, so we may have lots of other disciplines. We may be a very disciplined person, you know? I know all the rules and I follow all the rules, okay? I know all the guidelines, I do those. I knew what my job description is. I can fit it. I am disciplined and I complete it exactly as it should be. And sometimes even earlier, or I do more than I should. You know, I'm a very disciplined person. Yeah. 
and, uh, and, and we consider ourselves disciplined, but we're not, we're disciplined in following the rules and getting the work done, but we're not disciplined in terms of uh, controlling our mind. Because we'll follow the rules with a mind of, why do they have all these stinking rules anyway? You know, I mean, these just don't make any sense. I want to remake them. And why are there these guidelines, you know? I Again, they just don't make sense. You know, these people are really ridiculous. I want to make the guidelines. And, uh, you know, even, you know, why do, why do I have to do the prostrations this way? You know, I want to do them that way. Or, uh, you know, you know how we rebel against rules, okay? Or we, we follow the rules, but we're, we're kind of itchy inside of them because we don't feel completely, we kind of, you know what I mean? We're not really happy with them. We feel confined, you know? And we get anxious. Am I following the rules perfectly? Am I doing my job perfectly? Yeah, there's no room for me to make any mistake. Yeah, so we put that on our, on ourselves, okay? So we can be very disciplined in some areas of our life. You know, I always make my bed. I'm very disciplined. I take out the garbage. I clean my room. I brush my teeth every day, morning and evening. And I floss and I gargle with mouthwash, not the one that has alcohol, but the other kind. I follow all the dentist instructions. Okay. So then, you know, yes, we're disciplined in that area of our life. And that's very good. You know, it's helpful for your teeth. But, <laughs> yeah, but if you don't discipline, if we don't discipline our mind and we continue to create negative karma, having good teeth and, you know, getting a star on our report card isn't going to make much, you know, it's nice, but it's, it's not going to really fulfill what's needed. Okay. So the real thing is to control the mind because it's our mind that creates the havoc. Yeah, the rules are not the real problem. It's our mind that says, you know, I don't like, there's too many rules and I don't like them. And I didn't have a vote on these rules. If I'm living here, I should have a vote. Okay. Doesn't matter if other people know more than me do than I do. I want to vote on the rules. Until you give me my American vote, I'm gonna make you miserable. And that makes us happy. Um <laughs> I'm standing up for myself. I'm not letting anybody take advantage of me. They're not bossing me around. Yeah. I will do this, and I will do that, not do that. And I am the final decider of what I do and don't do. And I don't care if you have 
a monastic system that is 2,000 years old. If, no, 26, 25 centuries old. If I didn't have a vote on it, and if my vote didn't win, I'm not going to play. But you should still be nice to me and feed me and be pleasant and, you know, bend over backwards to make me feel comfortable. Yeah. So this is why they say the mind is the root of the problem. (laughs) When I, uh, this is a, a story I didn't tell when we were telling uh, stories about our full ordination last week. Uh, You know, because I went, I didn't understand the language. There was no translation except for a little bit in the break time by one of my teammates who spoke some English. But, uh, you know, and there were like 550 people at my ordination, a lot. And when it was time for teachings, the teachings were in the dining room. But you couldn't have everybody just go and put their shoes out and walk into the dining room. Uh, and even when you went in the, in the hall, the Buddha hall, you know, you couldn't have everybody just show up and, and take their shoes off and go in in an organized manner. Okay. So we had to line up outside. Uh, our, all of our teams lined up outside, yeah, and you're lined up and you're, you know, like this, and you, do, you don't look around at uh, the, all the lay people, you are firm and concentrated, but you try and <laughs> see what the person in front and to the side of you are doing because you don't understand what they're saying and you don't want to make an idiot out of yourself. Uh, but to go into the dining room for the teachings, we first had to file into the, into the hall, the Buddha hall. Okay, the Buddha, our rooms were over here, the Buddha hall's here, the dining room's here. We had to line up outside the Buddha hall. 550 people had to go into the Buddha hall in, in all of our lines. You can imagine how long that takes. And then, immediately after everybody was in, to file out again, in, you know, because you go in, in a single file, each team joining. When you come out, it's also a single file, each team joining. And so you had to file in like that, 550 people. Then you had to file out of the, of the, the main hall and go to the dining room and file in again. Okay? So, I am young, intelligent. Yeah. And I have American exceptionalism because we are creative people and can solve problems. At least that's what all the presidents tell, tell us, isn't it? Every, anything can be possible. So, I knew a better way to get 550 people in the dining room without wasting so much time going into the Buddha hall first. 
But you know what? Nobody wanted to listen to my idea. <laughs> Nobody. Can you imagine that? My brilliant idea that would have saved so much time. But they told me that I was there to train. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah, I guess. You know, I want to become a bhikshuni if that means I have to train. Well, yeah, I guess I better. So it was kind of like, you know, these are the master's kid, and they know how to do things. And you look at your mind if you think that you are smart enough to run the whole show of 550 people for over a month. Yeah. They didn't say that to me, but that's what I learned from it. It's like, okay, I came here to train. I'm, you know, I may have a beautiful, fantastic idea. And so what? Yeah. Right now, my purpose is to train my mind. <sighs> very humbling, but very good for me. Very good for me. Because this mind that says, hmm, I'm smart and intelligent and I can figure it out and I can do it. You know, that kind of mind is not really serving us properly. Uh, for me, it's I think it's a balance because we can still, I think it's important to understand why the rules exist and the reason behind it. Because mm -hmm. without it, we're just blindly following. And if we can question Buddhist teaching, we should also be able to question why all these rules exist. Yeah. So we can be more convinced that this is good to follow. Yeah. So there's different ways of questioning rules. There's you know, there are rules that were made here, made before I came by people who have more knowledge than me. And I want to understand their way of thinking on how they made the rules because that will help me follow the rules. But it will also help me grow in my own wisdom because what that all the factors that they had to take into consideration to come up with this rule are things that I've probably not thought about. So it's actually educational for me to learn about why things are done this way. Okay, that kind of questioning is very good, and we should do that. The kind that wasn't the kind of questioning I was doing. I was. The, you know, this just does not make sense, and I'm smarter, and I know better, and I will, you know, fix it. It's, you know, mine was coming from arrogance. Yeah, I didn't want to learn from them. I wanted to dictate. Okay. Well, did you ever find out why they were going into the temple before they were going to London? <laughs> no, because when it came time to ask questions, uh, I had some time to ask the master's questions. I, re I requested that time. 
I realized that this was not an important question to ask. <laughs> that it was, I had questions on the precepts and what constituted a transgression and how to keep the precepts in the living conditions I was going back to. And that was much more important than how you file in and out of a hall. Mm -hmm. A couple of things. Um, I remember we filed up too, but there was a short prayer before lunch. That's why we had to... Um, there was a what? A short prayer before lunch. Um, that's why we had to gather in front of the Buddha and then file up, file ah. back to the dining room. Um, but I wanted to share um, uh, a very nice example that I heard yesterday. Um, uh, Venerable Dicky, she told me that, you know, she has this knowledge about forest management and such. And so she came here and she has um, all this knowledge. And then um, talking with Venerable Samkir and... Um, I'm trying to figure out, um, I hope you don't mind, it's a beautiful story, I'm trying to figure out, <laughs> um, you know, how how that works here, and she said, you know, I have all these ideas, but I don't say them yet, I listen first, what, what has she developed over all these years, what has she learned, so uh -huh. she wanted to explore that with the intention to learn, and I found that beautiful, it's a yeah. good example of what you mentioned here. Yeah, right, because if you know why things are are done in a certain way. Then, you know, Semke knows that you have the education and experience. Then, <laughs> yeah, she may, uh, you know, invite, you know, you can say things and she'll hear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's always a wise way if you want to give feedback is to understand why somebody's doing what they're doing first instead of, you know, just going in there and saying, well, I know better and what you're doing is wrong and like that. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> I took the word right out of your mouth. <laughs> and. <laughs> And I wanted to say that efficiency is, I found, not the most important aspect of monastic training. And what? that's Efficiency. <laughs> efficiency, yeah. And that's something that I think comes up repeatedly for people who come here from the working world. And efficiency is usually the number one value. But you get here and you're like, oh my gosh, this is so inefficient. But it's the training so I'm thinking that filing in and out is like a fortitude practice. They're, they're teaching you to work with your mind. I mean, that could be the purpose. Yeah. Um, let me tell you a secret. I think things are too inefficient, too. But I try and say something to the people involved, and I have to practice fortitude. <laughs> so if I have to practice fortitude... They're tough cookies here. Yeah? But it's really true that we've been raised that efficiency is the most important thing, you know? And, uh, you know, and we aren't the most efficient thing. thing. Our efficiency could be improved, yeah? But you're right. It's training that is the most important. And so... 
the training in, uh, you know, because we come in here, just like me coming in here with my, going into Taiwan with all my brilliant ideas, um, you know, coming into a monastery, you have to come in with humility and an attitude that wants to learn, you know, because very often things are done for a certain reason. Sometimes the reasons are stupid, you know, but you have to listen to why people are doing what they're doing and then uh, in a respectful way, and then you can make suggestions, yeah. But if you come in and you're not trying to find out why they're doing what they're doing, you know, and you just want to change everything, then, uh, then you know, really our training at that point is to um, remember that we came here to train and we came here to learn and that uh, things, you know, there may be reasons for doing things in a certain way. I remember many years ago, um, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, maybe I shouldn't bring it up. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> but uh, um, it was only the, the two of us here, and uh, we had leftovers for lunch, and she was heating the leftovers up first day, second day, the same leftovers repeatedly. And I said to her, don't, you know, heat up, only heat things up once, not more than once. There was a little push, little bit of pushback on that. Because, you know, what do you want me to do? Throw out the leftovers, you know? No, that's not it. Just heat up the amount that we need. Yeah. And she says, well, why can't we heat up more? What's the problem of heating up leftovers multiple times? And then I realized, oh, she doesn't understand, you know, why not to do, to do it. And I said, because it... Every time you heat it up, it depletes the vitamins. Okay? So that's why you only heat the leftovers up one time. And then she said, oh, that makes sense. And then that solved the problem, you know, because then she understood that advice. So, um, you know, if, if we ask why things are done in a certain way in a respectful voice, people can explain it to us. And it might just make sense. Yeah. And sometimes they are very stubborn and they can't see it. Who's stubborn? Them or me? <laughs> Who's the stubborn one? The one saying, I do it this way, and you just shut up? Or the one who says, what you're doing is wrong, let's change it? Who's the stubborn one? <laughs> They're having a competition for who's the most stubborn. Okay. Or we've always done it this way. Yeah. Or... My teacher said we do it this way and drilled it into uh, me, and this is the only way to do it. That 
Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> yes. I think with the ordination training, it's a different context because um, I think a lot of it is really geared towards getting us to drop our self-centered mind. Yeah. And um, and the idea is maybe even there that that you're going to come up with the idea that this is inefficient and that you need to learn to deal with your mind about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the... Um, in that case, I don't think that the masters are being stubborn. I think they yeah. they have a reason for having you come up against something that you'll learn from. Yeah, but that doesn't happen just in or the ordination program. No, no, but that's that's a different context. Is what I'm saying yeah. during the ordination. I mean, it program. happens all through your life. <laughs> Whether people are trying to train you or not, you are in training. <laughs> right, right. But I, I yeah. <laughs> uh. Okay. Yeah. But the whole thing, you know, about ordination is we have to be humble because that, that mind of, uh, you know, I'm right, or I'm going to win, or I know best, um, is not going to serve us if we want to benefit sentient beings. Yeah, because we will become just as stubborn as the people that <laughs> we say are, are inefficient and holding all these dumb rules. You know, we will become exactly that way and just have the thing of, I'm doing what I'm doing, and I know best. Don't you dare, you know, challenge it. So it's very important, you know, for, I think, for developing bodhicitta. But humility does not mean you give in all the time and you keep your mouth shut, and it does not mean that you just say, well, I'm stupid and they're wiser, you know. It, it means that you deal with situations in a respectful way. Yeah. And that you're willing sometimes, yeah, when other people have a reason for doing things in a certain way, even sometimes it isn't the way you would want to do it, you give in because it's much easier to just do it their way then battle, okay? So there may be two ways of cutting the carrots that are equally efficient, you know, e very well done, but you just like the cut, the carrots cut so that they're round, and other people like the carrots cut so that they're like carrot sticks. You know, that one is just personal preference, you know? Somebody else wants to do it the other way. Fine. Yeah. And what, you know, just, it's, this is when uh, the verse in, uh, what is it? I will, when it says, I will give the victory to others. Yeah. You know, it's like, I don't have to win everything and get my preference. And it's nothing off of my back 
to give up my, my stubbornness. In fact, it's good for me to do that. If somebody is doing something harmful and they're stubborn about it, you know, like telling you to drink Clorox to, to prevent from getting COVID, you just don't say, well, I respect you, you know, uh, because you have a superior position to me, and yes, you know best, and I will follow. No, I mean, if something is dangerous, then you have to say something, yeah, and you may even have to go and take the Clorox and do something else with it, yeah? So you have to weigh each situation. Is this really something that is important where there's danger involved, either physical or mental danger, you know, where I have to intervene, or is this something that really is not such a big deal and it's just me wanting to be right, me wanting to have the last word? Question says, not sure why questioning and also accepting is mutually exclusive. If you can check mm. your mind for arrogance first, can we still question? Yes, exactly. That's my point. Uh, I just wanted to add, for the sake of people who like to think about reasons why things are done, uh, my perception too is, going back to the example of full ordination and the uh -huh. lining up, um, what Venerable Kunga said about Americans value efficiency, yeah. right? uh, Asians value order. And to them, mm -hmm. it's a magnificent, dignified display. Right? Yeah. All the lay people are out there watching to see the monastic standing at attention, doing their best, and to file in. I mean, when you describe your alternative, like the bell rings and everyone runs out in flip-flops and goes to the kitchen, man, <laughs> that would not fly. Exactly. Right? I was just like, it so would not work. Yeah. It's inconceivable to the master or the Asian mindset. It's like, huh? Yeah. And that, that is actually quite a good reason because as monastics, we should be aware that how we move in space affects other people's concept of monastics. And if we're just like, you know, then it, it affects people's respect, yeah, and faith in the Sangha. That's quite a good reason, actually. Yeah, where were you <laughs> all those years ago? <laughs> where were you in 1986? Well, karma ripened two years ago. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's just funny hearing you relate that because it's like a total non-issue to me. I never even yeah. asked the question. Like, it's like, yeah, of course we're going to get in line and walk. But yeah. I've, maybe I've done that my whole life. Like showed up, gotten in line and stood at attention and, and, not, and, and made sure yeah. we, the line was straight. Yeah. But, you know, in, in the Tibetan scene, everybody just runs in and your shoes are all, you don't even line your shoes up. I mean, I think it's really, I think, you know, we definitely have to line our shoes up. But they don't even, the shoes are all over the place. This step, this step, you, you know, you're in a hurry, you move somebody else's shoes, not by picking them up, you just kick them. <laughs> and one goes this way and one that goes that way. And that's just the way you do things. And it's it's fine. Yeah. Maybe 
And to add to that, also um, the uh, group um, ideology. Like I was also very familiar with um, lining up. I had no problem because um, I learned when I was very young, um, orienting yourself towards the group, not you as an individual. You just yeah. melt into the big group. Group, yeah. yeah and that reduces the ego uh, if you yeah. practice it well. Yeah, it is. It subdues our, our egoism. Yeah. But this is this is I think this kind of individuality that is so uh, ingrained in American culture I think is quite damaging actually, you know because it it, it makes people uh, it makes it difficult for people to cooperate because everybody says you know I want to vote and I have an opinion and even if you if my vote didn't win that's because it was a, a crooked election. Yeah. This this thing of I'm going to win no matter what. And it's, it's not good for the country. But, and we can all agree, that other people should definitely be more humble. But I am right. And my what I'm saying is for the benefit of the whole group. Yeah, this is our arrogance, isn't it? Yeah. Even with COVID, the masks and vaccines, the individual thing isn't helpful. Yeah, it isn't helpful. Yeah. I mean, it's really, we could have stopped so many, that's what's coming out now. So many lives could have been saved if we had just followed the people who knew more than us. Yeah, you know, without our individualism, you know, rising up and saying, well, I don't think it's a good idea, and I didn't have a vote in it, and, uh, you know, it makes me uncomfortable. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So as a result, we're the, the you know, the pandemic... Is uh, some people are saying it might be going into the fourth surge now. You know, and at the same time it's going into the fourth surge, um, states are opening up and and leaving the rules aside. And what's interesting is they think, well, not they think, forty three percent of the surges are in five states. Yeah. Well, yeah, Florida, uh, Michigan, I think. Wisconsin? I don't know. Uh, maybe Texas? Yeah. Yeah, maybe California too. Or, uh, yeah. Or, or actually, they were saying in the, the, um, central states, in the north central states, there were, there were more cases too, but it, you know, it, it kind of correlates with the restrictions. I have to say this has brought up a huge question about what the heck is liberty? You know, what, what, yeah. what, what is freedom about anyway? What is liberty? What are individual rights? Yeah. I mean, this whole, co this construct is just coming back to just blow us out of the water as a country because we, 
we've confused what that really means. Means, yeah. We we think liberty means I can do what I want, and it doesn't matter if you like it or not. My liberty can impinge on your liberty. Yeah, and that's okay because it's my liberty. But your needs cannot impede on my liberty. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh yeah, it's going to do a lot of damage that attitude. And that's the dominant culture. Oh, yeah. That and it's the dominant culture. I think because when we were little kids, you know, this stuff, we, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and they all rebelled against England for putting these taxes on us, and we are just not going to be bossed around by anybody. We want our life, our liberty, and our, well, I want my life, my liberty, my pursuit of happiness. If your life is uh, endangered by my liberty, too bad. Okay? <laughs> so that that's, that's, I don't think, what the founding uh, fathers meant. But, you know, this is the, the myth that of the revolution. And you know, who was it? Patrick, somebody said, give me liberty or give me death. Patrick Henry, yes. Okay. So, you know, give me liberty or give me death. So liberty is the most important thing, you know, and the people who, you know, the insurrected or, you know, whatever they did at the Capitol, however, whatever word you want to see, invaded the Capitol, um, that's what they were saying. You know, give me liberty or give me death. I'm taking back my country. Yeah. So I think, it, you know, a lot of it starts with the way history is taught. You know? And we stood up to authority and rebelled. Uh, white American men. You know, Christian, white, white, Christian, uh, prosperous men, not poor men, not women, not minorities, not people who aren't Christian, you know. Um, but it's taught to us as if, you know, it's, it's the rule for everybody. And, it's so strange because, you know, I remember growing up and thinking, wow, these are wonderful principles. I really believe in them. Every, everybody has these rights. And then wondering if everybody has these rights because of what it says in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, how come we have to have so many court cases to get our rights? How come? People don't just automatically realize, of course, this other person has rights. And, you know, why, why did some people have no rights to start with? And then when it finally dawns on the, the majority, why did these people even have to go to the court? It's like, wait a minute, it already says so in our founding documents, and we learned it and believed it when we were little, 
But how come? How can, what? How, it's not implemented across the board. Yeah, it's not implemented. And, uh, and many people, you know, s still have that attitude, you know? So, yeah, that's so strange. Yeah? It's like so obvious. We already decided that. Except that was the small print that none of us knew except the people who wrote it, because we couldn't see the small print. And the small print was, as you said, white, prosperous, Christian men. Yeah. So we read one contract, and the contract was written in another way. Small print. Yesterday we finished watching the documentary on women's suffrage movement. Uh-huh. And... If I remember correctly, at the very end of the uh, second part of the series, they said that any right that somebody has in a democracy was fought for. So I think they're making the point that like democracy doesn't drop out of the sky, and there's always these opposing forces there. And they were saying the women weren't given the vote. They had to fight tooth and <laughs> yeah. nail to yeah. get that ability. Right. And I'm saying, why did they need to fight? Because well, I, yeah, it and, was initially written. But you could say the founding fathers, <laughs> they had to fight England to get their right to vote. So, you know, democracy is yeah. like a product of all of these different yeah. causes and conditions. And it's a struggle. There's a, a struggle inherent in democracy that we don't always recognize. I think we're just a bit yeah. Pollyannish about it. Yeah. Well, that's because democracy isn't everything that the definition says it is. <laughs> And the definition needs uh, improvement, and people's behavior needs improvement as well. Our history expert. It's a, oh. a quote from James Joyce. Okay. History is a nightmare I want to awaken from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. That is, leaves us. We will start next time. 19. Yeah, verse 19 is very important, too. Actually, the whole book is very important. <laughs> <laughs>